Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and I'm thrilled today to be talking to my friend Becky Carver um, about a poem by Thomas Hardy, which is just um, a beautiful, haunting, um, heartbreaking poem called The Voice. Um, Becky's chosen that poem for our discussion today. Um, and of course, um, I'll remind you as, as I am wont to do at this moment in the podcast that for people who would like to look at the poem, um, I'll, I'll provide a link, um, so that you can see the text as we discuss it. And, um, and in the show notes, you'll find, um, other useful links, um, both, both to the poem, to, to Hardy, um, and, um, and about our guest today. Um, but let me tell you a little bit about, about Becky before we get started. So, so Becky Carver is currently uh, a lecturer in 20th century literature at the University of Exeter. Um, but before she got to Exeter, uh, well, if we go all the way back, Becky um, did both her undergraduate and graduate degrees at Cambridge University. Um, and, and after completing her PhD, she was also a junior research fellow at Trinity College at Cambridge. Um, that was followed by Leverhulme Research Fellowship and teaching fellowships at University College London and the University of St. Andrews. Um, now she's at Exeter, and so she's um, talking to us um, today from there. I think this might be the, I'm sure that it, is the largest um, geographic and time zone difference <laughs> I've had on the podcast. It's kind of fun to be connected at great distance. Um, Becky is the author of a book called Granular Modernism, which came out from Oxford University Press in 2014, which she described to me in an email as ancient. But um, I, I don't think that's a fair description either of the book's publication date or of the thinking in it. Um, the book is about a group of modernist writers who turn the inchoate nature of modern life into art by attending to the shapelessness of mundane experiences like eating and waiting. Um, Becky also tells me um, in exciting news that she's very close to completing a book called Modernism's Whims. Um, I was joking with her just now before we started about whether she had chosen that title because it was a hard one to say, Modernism's Whims. It's a great title, though. Oh, thank you. Yeah, sure. Um, and I suspect I've seen um, bits of it or um, um, encountered some of Becky's thinking that's going to be appearing in that book here and there. Um, and I have a very strong feeling that that's going to be a marvelous book, um, and we all look forward to it. Um, her articles have appeared in journals like Textual Practice, Critical Quarterly, Modernism, Modernity, and Essays in Criticism. Um, I first met Becky at the um, at an annual convention of the Modernist Studies Association in Toronto. I think it was 2019, and she gave an amazing paper there on the poetry of uh, Ford Maddox Ford, and. Um, the idea of dishevelment, that was her word, dishevelment. And um, I think what she had in mind was a kind of poem th that would seem in its content to be about states of disorganization, whether of hair or of clothing or what have you. Um, but in this poem, or, 
or rather such a poem would also perform its own kind of entropic disorganization, uh, metrically, say, uh, but in other ways besides. It was a marvelous paper. It was really exciting. Um, and, um, and the paper, I think, was exemplary of what I love most in Becky's work, which is namely um, an attentiveness to the peculiar phenomena, the feelings, the objects, uh, situations that together make up what it is to be alive. Um, forget about literature for a minute, just what it is to be a human being in the world. Uh, but then also a kind of careful working through of how poems and other literary texts, Peggy doesn't only write about poems, but she writes about, you know, these other works of literature that I've heard talk of sometimes, <laughs> novels and what have you, um, how poems and other literary texts make those phenomena available to readers and um, help us think about and experience anew those kinds of um ways of being. So, you know, dishevelment in Ford, as I said, but also things like driving in Los Angeles or <laughs> tennis or um, pulling out of parties or the idea of shy irony or color photography in Nabokov, I think, you know, um, okay. s- slot machines, squeamishness. Mm-hmm. Um, I could just keep going listing um, amazing uh, things that Becky has called out for our attention. Uh, but I won't because that'll keep us from getting to the task at hand today. I was really thrilled um, when Becky agreed to come on the podcast. And then uh, my thrill redoubled when she told me that the poem she wanted to talk about was Hardy's The Voice. <laughs> it's a poem that I've come to love. And um, I can't imagine a better person to talk about it with than my friend Becky Carver. Becky, how are you today? I'm well, thanks. Uh, thank you for that. That was amazing. Oh, well, I don't yeah, know. That was great. Thank I you. just said a few yeah. things that happened to be true. Um, so, um, yeah, well, you know, like I said, I'm, 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 I'm quite excited to, um, to talk about Hardy with you, to talk about this poem in particular with you. Um, I don't know. I don't often ask this. Was it difficult to make this choice or what? I mean, surely some of the, the, the interesting, the most interesting reasons why you've made the choice will become evident over the course of the hour or whatever. But, but um, I'd be curious if there's some short version of what led you to choose this poem, Why Hardy? Why the well, voice? Um, whenever, you, whenever you're asked to um, give your favorite poem, it's always difficult because there are always a million poems clamoring in your head. Mm. Um, and it's always the poem you're writing about at the moment that you like most, I find, mm-hmm. um, or that you sort of like hate or love hate. Um, but yeah, this is a poem I felt confident in saying I love because I've known it off by heart for 20 years. Um, and I've been just singing it to myself. And yeah. there are bits of it I've misremembered, um, mm-hmm. but which have, you know, have allowed me to interpret it. Um, in my own way, um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I I know that I've I've put lots of thought into it. Good. Well, um, I'm I'm sure we'll all um, see that that's true or hear that that's true as as we go. Um, let me ask you: Do you you know? Obviously, one of the first things that we ought to do here is to um, have. Well, I'll ask you to read the poem aloud um, in in just a moment. Um, 
do you think it would be useful to say anything by way of context mm. about the poem before you read it aloud, or would you rather read it and then we can get to that? Yeah, I so a couple of things that I want to say are that um, well, Hardy's Hardy's interest in poetry or interest in writing and publishing his poetry um, is is an important context for this. So he we know him as someone who spent most of his life writing novels and then switched to poetry, but he wrote poems all along, um, and and towards the end of the, his life, he started to publish his poems. Um, his reputation was established by then and he didn't need to he didn't need to persuade anyone that he was good on the basis of his poems um and so the poems became a freer space where he could do what he wanted um mm. and i think you see some of that license here it's in some ways quite a perverse poem so it was written after um he'd gotten married to florence but it was written about his wife Emma who died and um and it belongs to a book of love poems um elegies which are love poems at the same time mm. and um and and Florence could read this book you know <laughs> full of like these wonderful love poems um and it must have must have been really kind of difficult for her so I think you see, I think in, in that perversity, you see a sign of his different relationship with poetry that, mm. um, you see, you see that like in, in, in poetry, he could be himself, you know, regardless of what the consequences were. Um, yeah. You know, I, um, you, you know, Hardy much, much better than I do. Um, but I, in preparation for this, um, episode, just to sort of remind myself of a few things looked up the dates so that I could have them straight in my mind. So Hardy was born in 1840. Mm. Um, this poem is from 1912. So 72 year old man yeah, wrote this sounds, poem. Yeah, yeah. But by, by um, he didn't publish his first book of poems until 1898. Yeah, 58 years old. I, thought, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know yeah, if it was yeah, before yeah. or after his birthday in that year, but anyway, more or less, 50, yeah. 58 years old. Um, it's extraordinary. Um, yeah. so the sense that we might have of of Thomas Hardy as the author of um, um, Tess or of Jude the Obscure, you know, these these novels that are well known, I think, still today. That, um, I mean, maybe it's true that people don't you know, people who aren't poetry scholars or specialists in the period or something like that don't first think of Hardy as a poet, but his readers would, would perhaps also have been surprised, um, to see this novelist, um, publishing poem sort of making the swerve at the end of his, what, what seemed to them like a swerve at the yeah. end of his career. But as yeah. you say, he'd been writing poems all along. He had been, um, quietly writing poems because they were what he liked, I suppose. And mm -hmm. he keeps scribbling them and 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 scenarios for poems in his notebooks. Mm -hmm. um, so I like this idea that he had this this poem singing voice going on in his head, and that he thought in waltzes mm. um, while writing these prose novels. I like um, I like the idea of writers who in who in middle age switch from doing the sort of writing that they're supposed to do to doing the sort of writing that they want to do <laughs> a few writers like that and i think it's kind of wonderful it's like you know fuck 
and <laughs> I can do what I want now. Um, I'm going to have to die, so this is what I want to do. And then they just they yeah. do the writing they like, which I well, think is what happened. Yeah, I'm 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm overwhelmed with how um, to use the term that Brian Glavy has helped me think about in interesting ways. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of grimacing at how relatable what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe I'll accept middle age or maybe not. I don't know, but I, I get it. Um, and, and so, sorry. And, and so you mentioned his, um, that, that, that the, you know, the poem that we're going to be talking about today and many of the poems that he published at that moment were about his, his first wife, Emma, mm-hmm. who had recently died. So she died in November of 1912. Mm. And this poem is from, I think, from the next month, December of 1912. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and yet he had already remarried. Yeah. Or, yeah, a, a woman named Florence Dugdale, who was many decades younger than him. Yeah, and she was living with them, Florence, in their house. Um, Hardy and Emma's um, relationship had soured. Um yeah yeah had done so um like years and years before um and yeah and, and so they were they were all in the same house and it must have been really awkward but there's this mm. um great line in the poem where he talks about how she was he says um that um now you're not as you were yeah. and i think there's a, a kind of impulse to revive some freshness that was yeah, present in an earlier version of her, or an earlier, an earlier permutation of their relationship. Yeah, well, um, I, I think probably we're ready to hear the poem so that we can have it all in our in our ears. Um, so, uh, right, uh, remember again, you can um, uh, listeners out there, you can click on a link and look at a text of the poem as Becky reads. But um, we're about to have the great treat of hearing Becky Carver read the voice to us. Woman much missed, how you call to me, call to me, saying that now you are not as you were, and you are changed from the one who is all to me, but as at first, when our day was fair, can it be you that I hear, let me view you then, standing as when I drew near to the town, where you would wait for me, ah, as I knew you then, even to the original air blue gown? Or is it only the breeze in its listlessness, travelling across the wet mead to me here, you being ever dissolved to one wistlessness? Cured no more again, far or near. Thus I, faltering forward, leaves around me falling, wind oozing thin through the thorn from Norwood, and the woman calling. Mm. Thanks very much, Becky. Um, lots for us to talk about. Um, and, and you know, I think, why not begin at the beginning? Um, I'm so struck in particular by the rhythms of that first line. Mm. And um, how it is that, I mean, especially, I guess, in a poem called The Voice, mm. uh, I, I take it that at least in the first place, Hardy doesn't have his own voice in mind. Mm. Um, but I find that 
as a reader or now as a listener, I'm sort of particularly attentive to avoid, you know, the sort of um, metaphorical construction that is the voice in the poem mm. or your voice as you read the poem um, to us. Um, what are you noticing in the, in the, in the rhythms of that first line or how do you explain the sense of Hardy's voice that we develop right off the bat in this poem? Um, I think that um, he's um, searching around for a pulse in that first line, right? Mm. That, um, and then by the time you get to call to me, call to me, you can hear the waltz, you can hear the three beats, call to me, call to me, call to me. Um, but um, woman feels feels disyllabic. Um, and you have a, there are moments of wavering like that. But the pulse feels trisyllabic, or um, mm-hmm. primarily "call to me" feels like the pulse of a poem. So it's always in search of this, I think, this central rhythm. Um, and yeah, that's obviously in parallel with him um, listening out for a voice. But she started calling him before the poem starts, and we're supposed to hear her all along, I think. And so there's a sense in which the voice isn't the voice we hear. Um, in reading the poems, the voice is something that's only present to him. And what we get instead is an attempt to revive it. Well, I suppose that's true of every poem, isn't it? It's sort of, huh. it's waiting for a voice. Um, yeah, maybe so. That's fa- that's a beautiful idea. But you're hearing something in particular in the first line of this poem that implies that something has been going on just before the first line. Yeah, well, she's been speaking to him. Uh-huh. Woman, um, woman much missed how you call to me, call to yeah. me. Um, it's often the case in Hardy's poems that um, someone is calling him, something is calling him off, often a muse. Um, he has a poem um, that starts with the idea of a whim um, mm-hmm. carrying him off. Um, and, yeah, so there's a sense of being kind of seduced into writing. Um so having heard, having heard the voice, um, as evidently he has bef- just before the poem has begun, or even as it's beginning, might suggest a kind of um, proximity that he feels to her. Yeah. But I yeah. guess a voice is not a person. No, um, no, no. And, and woman seems like a kind of... I don't. I don't know. How do you take just that first word? Even now, I don't mean so much the musicality or rhythm of it, but you know how you know the poem would be different, wouldn't it? If if it began Emma or yeah, my wife or something. I don't know something other than woman seems kind of. Um, am I wrong? Do you think Becky in hearing a kind of. Um, alienation already from her in that in giving her that word or I think no I think it's I mean I think it's it's coded isn't it um it's kind of codedly for her so mm-hmm. on one level he's writing it as a poem he's not writing it as a letter so it's not right. her so instead he he addresses woman um but I I I love his relationship with M so mm-hmm. um often when you're in love with someone the the most prominent consonant in their name lights up and uh. Emma or woman. Um, uh-huh. 
I, I, I think you can hear her in it if you're looking for her. And, and then you can hear her in Much Missed too. Um, it's kind of fixation on, on a letter that is her, on a sound that is her, um, without being able to say her name. Because if you do say her name, it ceases to be a poem. Um, and huh. you kind of give up on the larger prize of its being being a poem or the larger achievement of it. It ceases, it ceases certainly to be the, the kind of poem that it is. The kind of poem that he wants to write, which is a poem which has a you know, life beyond his own. Right. Right. Which is so interesting because I guess what's already being posited there in the first line of the poem is that she has a life beyond her own. Yeah, 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 she does. And there's a parallel between those things, isn't it? That a poem has a posthumous life, a voice of the poem has a posthumous life, and so does she. Hardy was aware that, I mean, the poem is written, it, This is I'm not saying anything profound here, on the occasion of her death, mm. but it's also written in the awareness of his. Yeah, yeah, his coming death. Yeah. Um, and yet... Um, both voices will have posthumous life. I suppose that's what you're getting at as well, right? I think so. I think we're 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 differently describing the uh, uh, the same, or in any case, a very closely closely related um, phenomena. Um, well, in light of that, then maybe the um, the second line of the poem might begin to describe the way that the posthumous life is different from the. Um, mm. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, yeah. The previous one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Would that just be the humus life? I don't know. <laughs> that, that's not a word that people use. Um, <laughs> no, no. But would you, would it you talk? Delicious, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, would Would you say something about that second line then? Um, yeah. Um, so, on one level, it's it's saying that um, uh, she's the version who's come back. Um, is not as she was when she left. It, it's circuitous, however you might try to re- rephrase it, and it's circuitous in its in, in its construction too. Woman um, saying that now you are not as you were. Um, it's it's a mouthful, um, but it's it's two things at once. It's um, that she's 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 come back. <laughs> um, she's come back. Um, uh, in a in a form that um, isn't the version isn't the version of her who was awkward with Florence isn't the version mm-hmm. of her who withdrew, but um, who's willing to be who's willing to be intimate again, who's warm again, um, and on top of that, um, not as you were means not as not not as you are now, which is dead. Right. Um, but it's quite complicated, right? Because then it, by the third line, mm. when you had changed from the one who was all to me, mm. but as at first when our day was fair. So yeah, right. Sorry, I think I feel as though I'm just inelegantly rephrasing something which you just said in a in a really um, perceptive way. But but so that I've got it clear, it, it sounds as though in the second line what he's hearing is a voice from beyond, as it were, right? Yeah. Um, I, I no longer am embodied. I'm not as I was, mm. right? Um, but then the third line suggests a, a more kind of um, 
a transformation that she had suffered from his point of view in life from yeah. the woman he fell in love with into the woman that, uh, I don't know, these are my words and decidedly not his, but that he had grown tired of or estranged from or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if, you know, when you had changed from the one who was all to me, I mean, even before she dies, then in other words, right, as we know, she's no yeah. longer the woman who is all to him. No, um, no, no. But at they first, to each other. Yeah. yeah, but at first when our day was fair, seems yeah. like a, remembering a time when, when that was things the were case. better. Yeah, when things worked. Um, and also when, um, and it was, well, I think he means fair in the sense of a beautiful day too. He's walking around in the wind in this poem and he's remembering a summer's day when she was wearing blue. Yeah, it's December now. Yeah, it's December, um, but he can travel across time and across seasons. Um, in the poem, or she can, I suppose the important thing is that she can. Yeah, uh, and maybe still more important is that um, we can. Yeah, yeah. You still. know, in our experience of her in reading the poem, or yeah. in his of writing it, I guess. Yeah. Um, Though in the second stanza, he at least, uh, I don't know if it's offered sincerely or as a kind of um, bit of rhetoric or something, he seems unsure. Can it be mm. you that I hear? Um, is that a rhetorical question, Becky, do you think? No, I think it's a question addressed to her. And I think um, I, I think the caesura exists so that she can quietly say, yes, it is. And then he says, let me view you then. If I can hear you, why can't I see you? And then she turns up. Ah, she turns up where? How do you, how do you see that she turns up? In the original A Blue Gown, mm. which um, is kind of interesting. Um, um, someone else who is obsessed with this poem um, is I.A. Richards. And uh -huh. um, he used to lecture on it and he read it, he said, hundreds of times, and yet he could never get to the bottom of air blue. Um, he thought it was a mistake because nothing was air blue. Hmm. Um, but it's a beautiful um, word because it's a self-dissolving blue and the blue in the sky is an illusion anyway. Um, and to say that someone is as, as, is as real as the sky is blue hmm. um, is also to say, I suppose, that they're as real as an illusion, but it's a kind of illusion that's convincing. Um, a, a, so an an illusion that's convincing and that, and that is um, like ever-present. Ever-present, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Or, 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 or even better than that, like it goes away at night, but it, you're, you're sure it will come back the next day. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Or yeah. Even, if, even if you, you know, live in the English countryside or something and you get a lot of cloudy days that, yeah, you know, yeah. there, you there will the be a day when it comes yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, you, you wait for, for the air blue. Um, well, so, but... Okay, but there, th then there's also this kind of level that I, well, that I'm hearing where it's um, maybe she did have a maybe there was a particular blue gown yeah. that Hardy's remembering. Mm -hmm. So I'll just stipulate that <laughs> you okay. know such a gown existed in life, and he's remembering it fondly. Um, but of course, to say. Yeah, I mean, if the, if the logic of that second stanza is, oh, so I hear your voice, then show me the body, 
you yes. know, I want all of you. Um, well, first of all, it seems like what he might really want is, um, is some earlier version of her that mm -hmm. he held in his memory. Um, and then, and then it's as though this kind of image of her appears to go along with the voice, but yeah, in that dress, it seems as though she may as well be a, a ghost or something too, mm. like insubstantial as air, as you say. Yeah, 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 fading away. Um, yeah, it's yeah, she's somewhere between there and not there. Um, air blue yeah. hedges its bets, but it's also just a beautifully hopeful color, and it's the color of her eyes too. Um, they're uh. not quite. They they weren't. I suppose I I don't know. Like, how do you see air blue? I see it as a as a pale blue for some reason. Like yes. I see it as I see it as a, a blue with white in it for some reason. Although that's not the color of the sky when it's um, bright blue. Um, it's a deeper blue than that. But I find white in air blue, and yeah. um, I and I know her eyes were 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 vividly blue they were they were azure um uh um yeah so it's not it's not quite the blue of her eyes but it's evocative of it so there's a sense mm. in which it really is um it's kind of thinking back to her uh some um some faded version of yeah of a blue some that faded, he knows. Yeah, yeah yeah some faded or some but some related blue and um, it just leaps up in this poem, which otherwise is, is without color. Even to the original air blue, blue gown. gown. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's such a striking line. I, I don't want, uh, um, I don't want to get much further without j just backing up for a moment. You know, we're, we're kind of at a midpoint of the poem, mm. but, um, but before we just, um, barrel ahead I, I wonder if we can't zoom out for a moment and um do what we haven't i think done to this point in this conversation which is just to describe the um the kind of structure of the poem so it's in it's in four stanzas they're quatrains mm. they rhyme they have a kind of rhythm to them um becky is there anything you know either is there anything you'd want to say that's more detailed than the very brief sketch I've just given? Or is there anything about the formal organization of the poem that, um, I mean, you, you'd, you'd started today, I guess, by giving us this really lovely reading of the kind of rhythms of the first line and the sense in which it was feeling for a pulse. I guess, mm. I guess there's long been this history of thinking of accentual syllabic meter as related to you know um heartbeat or whatever you know um mm. there are i'm sure less and more interesting ways of talking about that that kind of thing um mm. but um yeah i mean what should we notice um about the way the poem is sort of laid out or organized either on the page or in your ear um i think um maybe the most important thing to um to draw out is um the closing stanza with with its abrupt short shortening thus i faltering forward um yeah. give a switch back into a um kind of a, a disyllabic 
trachaic opening, which feels like a faltering in a um, yeah. in a in a Wilson poem. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, let's save the last stanza. I mean, I want to come back to the last stanza, but um, you know, before we get there, I guess. Well, let's just take rhyme as one aspect of the poem. Um, rhyme can do all kinds of things, and maybe for mm-hmm. Hardy more than for a poet, surely for Hardy more than for a poet working today, rhyme would have seemed like an instinctive sort of tool ready at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but rhymes can do different kinds of things which, with each other is... is um, what's the work that rhyme is doing for you say in either the the first or second stanza of this poem um i think um i th- i think the um in the, in the first stanza um call to me call to me um uh might be thought of as a, as a cheat cheat rhyme and the same is the same is true of the second stanza that you have the cheat rhyme in then then you repeat the word uh-huh. that um has come before rather than having to think of a new word um but the point is to is uh, is to retread an old word and to keep as many old words in the poem as possible and to generate a kind of narrowness in the sound when i was working on this um ages ago I was listening to this um uh radio episode with my dad um about whistling and how whistling Mm. works um has a matter of like kind of organizing your mouth so that it's narrow and breath comes out in a particular way I'm I'm describing it awfully but no no um, it's wonderful in uh, fact I was just um I was just trying to teach my daughter how to whistle and it it was a very hard thing to explain. It's really hard thing to explain. I said you just have to keep trying until you <laughs> until you figure it out. Yeah. But okay, a na- but sorry, I'm... a narrowing that produces a, a certain kind yeah, of yeah, kind of narrowing sound. so that you produce a particular kind of resistance in your mouth, um, which then when you when you breathe through it or when you call through it. Um, yeah, produces yeah. the sound of a whistle, but I think that's what happens with repetitive sounds. That he's kind of organizing his, um, organ- organizing his mouth to create a narrow space through which a particular breath might repeatedly go, um, and then and then the giveaway is whistlessness, yeah. which is an ugly word until yeah. you see it as a whistle. Ah, that's so good. But before we get, before we even get to wistlessness, we'll come to that in a moment. I don't want to. I, I want to um, draw out some of the really lovely things that you've just been talking about, Becky. So, um, if if I'm hearing you right, the the rhymes are, well, first of all, um, an attempt at preservation or something. Yeah, rhyme yeah. becomes a way to um, encode or memorialize a thing we've just experienced. That is, you heard it, here it is again. And now that you've heard it a second time, it, um, well, we all know that it's easier to memorize a poem, say, when it rhymes. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a kind of aid towards memory. But here in some very like real way in the space of the poem, um, the return of these words is enacting a kind of fantasy that the, poet is you know 
experiencing here as he's hearing the voice of his recently deceased wife. Mm. Um, but the and these rhyme. So you were talking about narrowing. I mean, I understand what you mean by that in the context of whistling, but these rhymes are narrow. You were saying because um, they're not reaching out for a different word with the same sound, but they're it's like a rimrish. Um, you know, uh, in um, French might be described. It's not, you know, there. So if we just take the, um, let me view you then, mm. that's the ending of the first line of the second stanza, which, you know, these stanzas rhyme um, A, B, A, B, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So that, that's the A rhyme. The, the rhyming pair that it gets in the third line is, as I knew you then, Mm. So it's not just the it's not just the then then it's it's this sort of um you know what um a term that I've always found so awkward and uncomfortable in prosody but it's a feminine rhyme right it's yeah, um yeah. it's a rhyme that gets a so let me explain what that is to people who've never heard that term before and whose eyebrows are just raised, right? Um, <laughs> in, in prosody, people talk about masculine rhymes and feminine rhymes. And a masculine rhyme would be like, you know, cat and hat or something where you get the rhyme sound comes on the final stress syllable. A feminine rhyme would begin with a, with a, the final stress syllable in the line, but the line itself would end with one or more unstressed syllables and all of it would have to rhyme for it to be a feminine rhyme. Let me view you then as I knew you then mm. the, the stress syllables there would be the view and the new and the you then is sort of gets swept along with that. I, I wasn't sure. I'd never been sure why the one was called feminine and the other was called masculine. And I looked it mm. up. It's because of French, obviously mm. Yeah. that, that, um, in, in French, they would call rhymes feminine if they had the extra E at the end of the word that mm. indicated usually that it was a feminine noun or something. So, and then English kind of borrowed that and that term has developed. So, sorry, all of which is just to say those rhymes, which as you called them cheap, and I get what you mean, the mm -hmm. then and the then, or the um, to me, to me of mm. the first stanza, in the first stanza, it's call to me, all to me. Yeah. And in the second stanza, it's yeah. view you then, knew you then. Yeah, um, yeah. At like the tail end of those rhymes, there is a, a kind of merely duplicative work that rhyme is doing. But there is difference that's buried like before those duplications happen at the very end of the lines. It's actually quite a fascinating work of preservation yeah, that the yeah. rhyme is doing yeah yeah he has to organize his whole meaning around the possibility of them remaining the way that they are yeah and and maybe in the in the second stanza that possibility as you just said has something to do with the relation between um, well, as I as I say them in this tense, they're no longer going to rhyme. But viewing and knowing, mm. um, right? The idea of like, um, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 those are ideas that that rhyme by by which you might mean like they're similar and resonant, but not identical. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, you had mentioned to me before we started um, that, I mean, clearly this is a poem that is that one might read as elegy. That's not mm-hmm. a word that we've used yet in this conversation, I don't think. Mm-hmm. So that an, an elegy traditionally would be a poem that um, was doing a kind of um, the work of mourning, um, sorry, mm-hmm. mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, um, a poem on the occasion of someone's death, mm-hmm. a, a poem that is um, lamenting the absence of a beloved intimate um, friend or lover or something, usually, though I guess not necessarily always, um, and trying to create some kind of compensatory gesture for that loss, trying to sort of summon some kind of presence out of the absence that's been recently suffered. Yeah. What so... Becky, is this poem an elegy? <laughs> no, I, I have this theory that all of his elegies are written against the elegy form and that they, they, they refuse to reconcile themselves to the fact of death or to the fact of absence. And not only is she not gone, she's capable of being revived, revived as she was when she was, they were still in love. And, um, and so there's this kind of wonderful refusal of, reality in it um but it's a kind of refusal of reality which is made possible by every poem and keeping a voice alive you know um poetry poetry keeps things immortal so if you're not gonna bring someone to life in a poem where can you um Mm. that that yeah that idea you and you asked you you asked me if i was going to disagree with you i'm not disagreeing (laughs) with you but I want to put some. I, I want to. Um, I want to like l- with you lean as hard as we can on that idea which you've just said, which is such a beautiful idea. Um, you know that a poem can keep things alive, or that Hardy is not is is sort of refusing elegy because he's not admitting the absence. Mm. Um, I wonder. You know, there are things that people say in poems or things that people say about poems that are, one gets the sense that the poet, if it's the poet who's saying these things, Mm. almost believes them or wishes that they were true. Yeah. Or um, maybe in addition to or other than those things, um, acts as though they were true. Yeah. But that there is also some recognition that is maybe unspoken but kind of trumps those feelings in some way that um those things are merely fantasy or or and and so but i but i think i'm getting the sense from you that what i've just been describing is a position that elegy that that might fit many elegies in let's just say like the English poetic tradition Mm. but that for Hardy it's like he he really isn't admitting the absence in some fundamental I mean he knows she's dead right Becky so what so (laughs) what is it that yeah I mean make what's the strongest case for this kind of refusal to admit the death that that you could make here 
I was just thinking about it um, today um, alongside a poem of um, W.S. Graham's, um, an elegy of W.S. Graham's, with start, which starts with the line, um, I called for you today, Peter. Um, and it's about you turning up at Peter Lanyon's house, um, mm-hmm. um, knowing he's not there, and um, the conceit is that he still believes he's there and, yeah, finds him not to be there. And it's... Uh, it's a heartbreaking first line. It's impossible to read without tearing up a little bit. Well, yeah. I I find it hard to anyway. Um, whereas that's not that's not the tone of the Hardy. Calling to me is um, real mm. in the Hardy, um, and it's not simply something he's imagined. It's something that he then generates in the poem through the rhythm, um, mm. and then he kind of locks. Um, into the rhythm by, you know, like um, mm. turning it into a full poem and then having our voices move through it. He has mm. this kind of script through which our voices move. And um, and also, you know, by, by having the script there, you have the set of sounds um, that we can then reanimate with our voices. Yeah. Um, he's keeping the, the text open to ghosts, isn't he? Like permanently. Yeah. Permanent. She can she can go there. It's a place where she can go and and call. Um, so reading yeah. the poem in this view is is to perform or admit a kind of act of haunting every time you read it. Yeah, yeah, we are haunting it every time we read it. Do, do you think? Um, and I don't mean to reduce the poem to biography, but um, do you think it's easier to? Um, to do a poem, to write a poem that does what you've just been suggesting this poem does, mm. if before the death occurred, there was mm. already the kind of estrangement that would have made her into a voice. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I, and by that yeah. I mean like merely a voice, but yeah, no longer yeah. a body that he yeah. was intimate with. Let's say. Yeah, well, I mean, the the real Emma, she wasn't summonable. Um, she was, you know, someone who was, who was pretty obstinate and um, who couldn't have been called upon. Um, so there's a sense in which um, it's, yeah, um, it, it, it doesn't match mm. the sort of person who she became. Um, but at the same time, I suppose she's the one, she's the one calling and she's the one, um, inviting him. Um, but yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I, I agree with that, that, um, that she maybe needs to have receded a little bit, um, to be, um, treated in this way. Mm. In the, in the third stanza, he seems unsure yeah. About about it all. I'm going to read the third stanza again, and then I want you to to tell us something. Um, tell us what you're hearing in it. Mm. Okay. Or is it only the breeze, in its listlessness, traveling across the wet mead to me here? You being ever dissolved to wan wistlessness, heard no more again, far or near. That's a it's, question. I didn't read it like it was a question at the end, but yeah, that so that third stanza ends in a, in a question. So, is it only the breeze? Yeah, yeah, being the brunt of this question. 
yeah. Well, so in the first stanza, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the third, in the third stanza, he's like, uh-oh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the fourth stanza, it's like, yeah, <laughs> calling. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of a moment of wavering, but it's also the moment when he starts whistling for her. So she stopped calling, but he started whistling, um, as he would for his dog, and he also had a dog. Mm. Huh. Trying to get her attention somehow with the sound yeah. that he's making. Do you think it sounds reconciled, that third stanza? Even the third stanza, which is the maybe the most mournful um, maybe the saddest. Does it sound reconciled to you? To I don't know. You know gone? what? You know what I hear in the third stanza is, um, and I don't know what Hardy's attitude would have been towards, like, um, and you can tell us, but towards romanticism, you know, mm -hmm. British romantic poetry. But I, I'm hearing like the Aeolian harp or something there. Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of um, sound produced by the wind, you know, blowing through, um, um, well, in this case, traveling across the wet mead that's producing a sound that can be mistaken. I mean, in the, in the romantic, you know, sort of for the romantic poets that would have been like mistaken, mistaken might be the wrong word, but taken as music yeah, as a kind yeah, of music yeah, yeah. here yeah, though. Yeah. It's like taken, um, D describing that kind of effect is is an expression of skepticism about the um, about the kind of persistence of presence that he's just been asserting, right? Oh, it's just yeah, sure. the wind, right? Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's his moment of doubt. He's like, oh, oh it's just the wind. But so, I mean, I guess what I'm saying to answer your question from a moment ago, Becky, I, I think I'm taking it as a kind of um, as a, as a stanza of um, disenchantment or something you know well, not altogether disenchantment because he starts believing again in the fourth no i yeah. think he's i mean it's you know one um you know anyone reasonable would um start to doubt um that a ghost had come back and so um in order to um yeah continue to come across as reasonable he has to have that standard there and say well maybe it's only the wind and then you come back and say no actually it's not the wind at all but there's another yeah. poem that he has called, um, I think it's called A Shadow Across the Stone. Yeah. Where, um, do you know this poem where he's... Um, he, I'm not he so well that I'll be able to quote it, but yeah, I know the one you mean. It's very beautiful. I can't quote it either. But it, the idea is that um, he wants to believe that the shadow falling across the stone is um, her. And he doesn't want to turn around because if he were to turn around, then he'd know that it wasn't. Right. And so he wants to believe. And, and the same is going on here but with sound rather than a shadow. Well, belief often works this way, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you don't have to. But if there, but um, normally with belief, there isn't um, evidence available that you can consult. But in uh -huh. the case of the shadow, there is, and yet he doesn't want to consult. Her. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, my daughter once asked me, we were at Disneyland. She asked me if the um, characters we saw there were real characters, were the real mm you know, Mickey and Minnie and so on, or just people in costumes. Mm. And I said, well, what do you think? <laughs> and she said, I think they're real because if they were just people in costumes, that would be really sad and no one would want to come see them. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, That's you really know, wonderful. she was like, she knew the truth, <laughs> but she, 
but the motivation was strong enough that it was just better to believe. You know, the world was yeah. better if you believed. And so she was willing to lie to herself. I mean, yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't say that to her. But I hugged her. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Let, well, let's come to the fourth stanza because it's different from the others in a few ways. I mean, the lines get much shorter, at mm-hmm. least the, so these are quatrains again, so four line stanzas. And in the, in the fourth and final stanza, the first, second, and fourth line are short. Um, mm-hmm. They look shorter on the page and they are shorter in terms of their um, meter. Um, and, and maybe we should, we should talk about that difference or why and how to account for that difference um before we end today but um but i actually want to begin just with the um with the first word of the fourth stanza which um is an awfully unpoetic word thus um so that 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 fourth stanza begins thus i faltering forward thus i then a semicolon then faltering forward so thus you know it's a it's a word that tends to do a kind of like logical work in English, right? It means like um, what you're about to hear follows in some sense as though logically or naturally or or in the same spirit or style as what you've just been hearing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it sort of a, it implies a relation between what you're about to hear and what you've just heard. That is something like that, right? Like what what's what follows follows naturally from what preceded. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't understand. I mean, I I I I suppose that kind of relation is being asserted here, but I don't mm-hmm. understand why or how how it is. So, how do you take the the first word there of the fourth stanza thus? Thus I. Um, I, I, I think it's, um, it's a convention in poems sometimes, um, in, in sonnets especially, to mm. sound as though you're summing up. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's a conceit, and I think it's partly a conceit here. Um, but it also has the implication of um, thus I, am, uh, in, in this condition, standing mm-hmm. as I am now, in this huh. position, in this predicament, thus I. Falter yeah. forward, lose yeah. around me for them, and then the tune starts up again. Um, the the walls. Oh, that's good. So you've you've walked me back a little bit from demanding the kind of logical precision from thus that I seem to be suggesting we we ought to find there, um, and not and and don't. There's this. Um, it's such an interesting line. Thus, I again with the the kind of caesura from the that we get from the semicolon in the middle of the line and that alliterative mm. second half of the line almost as though it were a bit of Anglo-Saxon verse or something. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, yeah. Faltering forward. Um, yeah. Those those words are clearly doing a kind of mimetic yeah. um, rhythmical thing there where the they're getting that um, those are words um, the, both falter, you know, Sorry, faltering um, is um, on its own, I guess. A, um, a dactyl. I'm pausing yeah. to make sure I've got it right. But right a dactyl, <laughs> right? With the, with the with the stressed first syllable, it's tri- a trisyllabic beat. You know, with a stress where, where the stress comes on the first syllable and it's followed by two unstressed syllables. So, faltering, 
forward, you have to read as a trochee, right? Yeah, Where it's yeah, a, yeah. a two, you know, a, a disyllabic um, um, beat where the stress comes in the first of the two syllables. So in both cases, it, it you know, you feel as a reader as though you're stumbling along. Yeah, yeah. Um, like you're tripping over something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. What, what, to what does that um, stumbling or falling correspond in the um, emotional or psychological or sort of spiritual life of the poem at this point? Well, he's had his moment of doubt in in yeah. the third stanza, I think, and he's faltering forward. He's faltering me, finding hope again, and then uh-huh. um, leaves around me falling. Um, there, are, there are movement forward into the unknown, and ultimately he can hear a voice. So I think it's the, the faltering forward is a faltering, um, it's a faltering climb towards hope. Um, it's not Austin. like fall, it's not falling back. It's fa- falling forward. Falling forward, faltering, falling forward. Yeah. I can't remember which which of the feet is supposed to be a falling foot and which one is supposed to be a rising foot. I wonder if that's relevant to you. Oh, I think is these it? are. I think these are falling. Yeah. Yeah, these yeah. Are, yeah. These, these are, are all falling. falling yeah. They're falling feet. Yeah. Um, they're footfall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, he's um. Yeah, he's. You can hear his feet. You can hear his feet as he stumbles, and um, and but he's finding his way. He's finding his feet. Uh huh. And it's yeah, it's a movement forward. Is a movement towards um, forward. Is a movement in a positive direction out of doubt. Um, it reminds me of this, like Jail Austin says, um, mm-hmm. when he's stuck in an argument. Um, it can feel like there are brambles in his path, and he has to tear them away to move forward. And it's uh-huh. maybe um, that kind of logical impasse that you're sensing too. Um, yeah. There's a kind of it feels kind of like a like a logical impasse yeah. um, that thus I introduce is or kind of tries to resolve um, with a language of argument. Mm. Clearing away um, the brambles also makes me well. It's related to something I was going to ask you here: was wh- whether you have an account of um, why the lines shorten up in in that final stanza. I mean, um, so here's one possibility, but mm-hmm. but tell me if you think it's a satisfying one, or if you have something in addition to offer uh, uh, that would explain it that. Because it would seem, as I'm as I'm about to say it, it occurs to me that it, it would it would um, it would seem to contradict your conviction expressed earlier that he's not admitting the loss, you know, in yeah, some real yeah. way. So so, the, but the possibility, therefore, is like the lines are shorter because now he's alone. Yeah, no, I, I think he is alone in that line and has to find her again. Okay, so yeah, so so get us so so in those first two lines, thus I faltering forward. That's the first line of the fourth stanza. Leaves around me falling. The second line yeah. of the fourth stanza. Now, talk to us about the way that stanza ends. Would you read those last two lines again? And wind oozing thin through the thorn from Nord. They're pushing his um, lips to the front of his mouth. Mm. Um, and yeah, and I yeah, you can kind of vividly hear um, the resistance of sound against the resistance against the front of your own mouth. 
to make those to, um, th to make, to sounds. To make the sound, yeah. to make, yeah, yeah. And the ends, yeah. Yeah. Thin through the thorn from mm, Norwood. Norwood. Try that, listeners, <laughs> as, <you're, laughs> yeah. Yeah, as you listen. Wind oozing thin through the thorn, the thorn from Norwood. Okay. And you yeah, read which, that last line almost as though it were a question. Yeah, and the woman calling. I always hear it as a question. I think, yeah, I've always, I've always, um, I think I must have misremembered that there was a question mark at the end. But I always hear it that way, and I think, I mean, there's a, there's a real, I mean, there's an attempt to summon her, um, to call again, um, but he can just about faintly make her out at the end. Mm. He's gone from just misbelieving disbelieving himself altogether um to almost hearing her again and i think he can just about hear her again at the end yeah um but we have to find the voice too and i suppose i mean that's kind of our our function as readers um you you say to put the voice back in yeah that's a nice you, you say function and i'm um i'm i'm thinking about how i sometimes say that my um uh you know the um, the linguist Roman Jakobson has this um, mm. this description of um, the the various kinds of functions that language can have, and he's interested in um, identifying and saying something interesting about what he calls the poetic function of language. But along mm. the way, he describes something which I have, I've always been more interested in than the poetic function, which is the phatic function, the p h a t i c. Yeah. which is the the kind of um you know the most ordinary examples of the phatic function of language are um the uses of language um like when you're talking to somebody on the phone and you say can you hear me now or when you step up to a microphone and you say testing one two three um the, it's it's a use of language that's that's sort of drawing attention to the um to the contact that's um, that exists or doesn't um, mm. between the the speaker and the um, the addresser in, in Jakobson's terms and the addressee, um, mm. so that the content of what's being said is almost beside the point. Like two people yeah. making small talk on a on a first date or something. Really, what mm. they're talking about is like you and I are here at this table together. Not yeah, yeah. we don't care about the weather. It's just filling a kind of role for us here. Um, to put a question mark as you did at the end of mm. that first, at the end of that last line, mm. um, or even, you know, the question mark isn't there, but to hear it as a kind of question or the impulse, I guess, the instinct mm. you have to read it as though it were a question seems to me that it makes the poem as much that it that it sort of makes the poem about the phatic function of language yeah. there at the end, like, yeah. Yeah. you know troubling the question of whether it is really her that I'm hearing or whether whether she's calling to me there's not much in the poem except um in that second line the second line of the poem saying that now you are not as you were um about what it is she's saying like we're aware no. of her voice but not of her words right no 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 i like that idea that they're phatic where he's yeah. he's whistling and and she's calling yeah and so the content doesn't matter at all it's that they're establishing the presence of the other <laughs> yeah uh, that's such a nice thought well and it's um you know it also gets at um some of what 
well, some of my reasons for wanting to do this, um, I don't mean this particular conversation with you, Becky, but I mean, I mean that and the whole project of these conversations period is, um, to, you know, apart from the insight that we get to shed on particular poems, that that sort of feeling of contact that one gets when one is talking about a poem with someone else, um, is, um, is so important to me and I've, I've been very grateful to get it from you. So, um, Becky, thank you so much for taking the hour to talk to me about Thomas Hardy. Um, oh, it's such a treat. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, it's my pleasure. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, listeners, um, remember, um, to, uh, follow the podcast, to, um, to leave a rating or review if, if you've been enjoying it, um, to share it with a friend, um, remember also that there's a newsletter that'll go out with each episode of the podcast and you could subscribe to that newsletter. You'll see a link to that in the show notes. Um, and one thing that I've been meaning to say, I think I've said as much on Twitter, but I, um, I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast and I've just remembered it. So let me say it now, um, is that I hope there will be a way to make the podcast available. I mean, those of you who have students, um, and, and our teachers of, uh, of um, poetry at whatever level, high school, elementary school, or um, college, or whatever, um, to, to make these close readings available to the students. That, that seems like a very exciting possibility to me. And I, um, I've heard of some of that going on already, and it seems like such a delight to me. So um, I'll put in a plug for the podcast in that way as well. But that's all for today. Um, we'll have we'll have a new episode for you soon. And I want to thank you so much for for listening. Becky, thank you again. <laughs>